Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for weekly updates about my podcasts, events, and more. Also, follow me on Instagram at zibbyowens and also at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And finally, join my virtual book club called Zibby's Virtual Book Club, which meets every other Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time until 3 p.m. and features half an hour of book club discussion, followed by 30 minutes of Q&A with the author whose book we've just discussed. You can sign up on my website, zibbyowens.com, under the virtual book club section, or even on Instagram under the link in my bio. I hope you'll find me in all these different channels and enjoy this podcast. Today's sponsor is my bookshop.org store and my Amazon store. I don't know if you guys even know that I have these, but you should check it out because I sell all the books that I've had on this podcast, so you can easily find them and buy them. The bookshop.org site is bookshop.org slash shop slash Zibby Owens. And the Amazon shop is amazon.com slash shop slash moms don't have time to read books. So I hope that you will check out my Amazon influencer store and my bookshop.org storefront. And the bookshop.org storefront also has all the books from my Zibby's virtual book club and some other suggested reads. So I hope you will check those both out and go shopping. Go buy some books from the podcast and support all these amazing authors. Novelist and poet Nessa Rappaport was born in Toronto, Canada. She is the author of the novel Preparing for Sabbath and a collection of prose poems, A Woman's Book of Grieving. Her essays and stories have been published in the New York Times, LA Times, and Forward. Nessa's column Inner Life appears in the Jewish Week, and her memoir House on the River was awarded a grant by the Canada Council for the Arts. Her newest novel, Evening, explores the dissonant love between sisters, the body and longing, the pride we take in sustaining our illusions, and the redemption that is possible only when they are dispelled. Welcome, Nessa. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss your novel, Evening. I'm glad to be here. Thanks. So first of all, this was such a beautiful book. I loved it. So great. I love your writing style. So poetic and just great. I'm a big fan. And then after I read. Okay, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, after I read it, I started, you know, investigating more and I read that it took you 26 years, really 30 years, to work on this book. So tell me the whole story of this book. I know you also maybe tell a little bit about the memoir you wrote and, and your first book, which I know is a huge success. So just give me, give me your whole story. (laughs) I began this book in 1990. The first chapter came to me in an instant. This has never happened to me as a writer before and certainly not since. And I thought, great, this is going to be my easy book. This one is just going to flow out of me and I'm just going to build on that first chapter and I'll be done really soon. And for once, writing will not feel as it usually does, like feeling tiny pieces of skin off my body one at a time. That sounds like fun. Describe my current life as the further humbling of Nessa Rappaport. And one instance of that is how long it took me to write Evening. Because in essence, what happened was, I created a setup with a kind of propulsive story. And then I had all these obligations to the story. And I had never written a book like this. The the opening is, as you know, two sisters. One is grieving for the other. They're in their 30s. The Eve, the narrator, has come back from New York to Toronto, where her sister died very prematurely. Her sister is a famous Canadian 
the most famous Canadian anchor woman on TV. She has a devoted husband and two lovely children. And Eve is almost deliberately indeterminate. She's endlessly writing a PhD. She can't quite finish on British women writers between the wars. She's always lived in tiny rental apartments. She teaches English at a community college to women who come in the evening. And her life drives her older sister, Tam, crazy because Tam is a whoosh into the future and Eve is in love with the past as Tam accuses her. And throughout the whole book, although Eve has died, Tam is always in her head, as you know, talking to her and in dialogue with her. So in this first chapter, you learn very quickly that these two sisters who have complex but definitely loving relationship had a stupendous fight two weeks before Tam dies and they never reconciled, which is not only an awful burden for Eve, but also against their principles as sisters, because as you learn as the book goes on, whenever they had a fight when they were both alive, one would call back into the front door, I love you, I love you, in case she died in a car accident and never got to reconcile with her sister. So this is that. Did I know what the fight was about? I did not. So that was problem number one. The <laughs> issue and the one that threads through the whole book is that, as you know, and as readers know, the morning after the funeral, Eve discovers a secret about Tam that upends her view of herself and her future, her sister, her family ecology. And it was my risk. I did know what the secret was, but I had no idea how to construct a narrative that would thread that secret through the book and keep you, the reader, engaged as it unfolded. I knew that it didn't matter if you figured it out sooner or later. And I think some readers figure it out right away and some, to my thrill, don't figure it out till the revealing scene. But it's not a mystery, it's a novel, so it's okay. Whichever, <laughs> if you figure it out early, then you know something Eve doesn't know and that creates a kind of its own momentum. And if you don't figure it out, then you have the same surprise she has as she encounters it at that moment. So that was a real challenge because I was a kind of interior, more Virginia Woolf writer. I started out as a poet. Language matters a lot to me. And I felt I had a responsibility to keep this story pushing forward as I shuttled back and forth from present to past in these scenes. I had the great grace to have a mentor named Ted Solitarov, who was a very eminent editor who's no longer alive, of blessed memory. And I took him out for coffee early on. And I said, here's my setup. I don't know how to move forward. I can't figure out how to tell this plot. And he said to me, plot is character. When you know your characters, you'll know how to do this. And that explains most of why it took 26 years. <laughs> and how now we have this book in front of us that took you all this time and, you know, evolved. I also, I read your interview with your daughter, which was so awesome. I think in Glamour. What happened to you? I assume your kids aren't quite as old as mine, but this is what happens. <laughs> I hope so. I interviewed my dad on my podcast because he also wrote a book. So that was really fun. So That's I'm funny. hoping someone will interview me eventually. <laughs> so tell me how what that was like. And also tell me about having all this, all of this out in the world and how you, you relate to your family and how this relates to your relationship with your sisters. This is very, you know, sister heavy book. So tell me a little bit about all of that. Well, I'll start with the sisters. Okay. Having sisters is a thing. And we are four sisters within six years. Whoa. Which was, yeah. Which was, you know, tribute to the mother. But those were the years after the war when atypically, actually, women stayed home and wanted to be home. It was the great retreat from 
when women were actively participating because men were at war. And in Toronto, in Canada, men went to World War II also. So my mother, my mother had an utterly exceptional mother. And as you know from evening, the grandmother, who is not quite my grandmother, because it really isn't an autobiography, but little tidbits and tendrils entered. And there's always a remarkable grandmother in everything that I write. So one of my friends says, it's one of your signature moves. (laughs) (laughs) My grandmother was part of that pioneering generation of first doctors, first lawyers. She was born in 1897. She was the first woman and the first Jew to get a PhD in physics from the University of Toronto. And she had five children and she was an observant Jew on top of it all. Plus, she was born in Canada, which for Canadian Jewry was very unusual because it's a much newer immigration than here. So, of course, in response, my mother, who has many aptitudes and is still with me at 92, wanted to be married and raise children and have a big family, which she went on to do. The thing about sisters is, as my friend Francine Clagsburn noted, your siblings know you longer than anyone if the creator is good and everybody dies in order. And sisters know each other in a very intimate way. Do you have sisters? I have a brother. I've become very close to sisters-in-law, but I don't have a sister. So it's different because you know the scent of your sisters and you've stood next to each other in the bathroom and you've exchanged makeup and you've inevitably, if not competed, you compare. Because I was the eldest, I didn't have anyone ahead of me. And it took me many decades to understand that my sisters coming behind me noticed and paid attention. I noticed and paid attention too because my sisters were almost my peers at a certain point. And then, of course, by now really are. But they really noticed. So we were in this kind of ecology. It's funny. You polarize each other into roles. And one of the things I wanted to show in evening between these two sisters is that on the surface, anybody would assume, and the people who come to this Shiva house for mourning do assume, that Eve is jealous of her sister. Her sister has, quote, everything. And Eve is unfinished. But in fact, Eve has never been jealous of her sister. She's aware of her sister. She's in awe of her sister, but she's not jealous. And by the end, in some ways, you could certainly argue that it turns out Tam was jealous of Eve, which is one of the reasons that she makes such sardonic comments about Eve's lifestyle. Because as I used to say to my children, a secure person doesn't have to talk like that. (laughs) So Eve may seem to have it all, but she's always sort of harping. Once you release a book into the world, it's no longer yours. And several readers have said to me that they were alarmed by Tam's hostility. That's the word they used to her sister. I really didn't experience them that way. I experienced them as sisters. But one one thing that happens with siblings, I think brothers and sisters is you each adopt a role. And because you don't want to, you want your own identity within a family, you're pretty protective of your role and you don't actually want to be the other person. So one of the amusing aspects of the sister issue is my mother's one of five. She's the only daughter. My father was one of three boys. So neither of them had sisters. They grow up in the depression when you defer to authority and you take on responsibility almost prematurely early. And they have these four daughters coming of age in the youth culture where young is adulated and the economy is good and nobody's thinking too much about responsibility. They were totally at a loss. And my mother used to say that she worried that we would want each other's boyfriends. Well, (laughs) once you're in a family, you never want the boyfriend of the other one. 
I mean, one of the things that's interesting in this novel is there are two other sisters. There's Nana and her very beautiful, kind of amoral sister. That sister, Nell, certainly is impinging on Nana's life and indeed on the life of anybody she can. So the last thing I'll say about your question is I'm very interested in the role of beauty in a large family constellation. There's always someone or some few people who are exceptionally beautiful. And the way the family responds to that is fascinating. And I learned everything I know sitting around the kitchen table listening to women talk. And I think evening reflects that. Well, I'm actually jealous of, I mean, I love my brother and I love my family and, you know, I wouldn't change anything. But the unique experience you had growing up with like three women and what that does to a person's sort of character ongoing and like your other relationships, that's such a, a gift. That's a gift. It's not, as, I, as you know, and I know, uh, and I like to say, if you'd like to mythologize it, great. But of course, it's not like that. It's complicated. Right. No. It's complicated. Loving complicated. So the fact that one sister dies in this book and yours, thank God, are all living, where did that come from? Is this like your biggest fear is that this would happen or did it stem from other losses? Because I know you've written a lot about loss. That is a really good question. I, because this setup happened to me, I'm sure you've talked to so many writers and don't some of them say, I kind of wasn't in control of my characters. They sort of took over. Yes. I did not understand that. And as I have said, I found it a little pretentious until it happened to me. <laughs> I, I did lose a friend in her 30s to breast cancer, but I know she wasn't in my conscious thought. And one of the reasons I, I think this book is all unconscious, but in some ways that makes it more autobiographical because it's coming from deep places of collected anxieties, as you know, and impressions that I wasn't entirely in charge of. In terms of the grief and the loss, I have had a very blessed life. At this point, I have lost four very close women friends. At the point that I started and wrote that first chapter, I had lost only one. But I'm, you know, a porous person. And the daughter whose interview you read used to say, oh, mom, you and your morose childhood. (laughs) You know, writers are dark. And I think I wrote to alchemize suffering into something better. I'm I'm a very, very not believer in the silver lining of life. I, I see no point to suffering. I wish none of us had to endure it. But since we do, I feel I'd like to give something back. And what do I have? I have wisdom. And to come back to your first question, the, the signal biggest difference between when I started this book and now It's not that my sister's characters changed. It's that I got older and life became more nuanced and I endured losses myself. And I had to come to understand that loss is absolutely intrinsic to being alive. Tragedy, not necessarily, if you're lucky, but loss, absolutely. And the last thing I'll say, but it's evident in this book, and I didn't realize it was a main theme until I started talking to people who read it is that I do not believe that when someone leaves this world, you necessarily need to end that relationship, even if it was fragmented and really not where you wanted it to be. I think we keep growing. I like to say the only physics I know (laughs) compared to my grandmother is that we're always in motion and that energy doesn't die, it just changes form. And I believe that love is a galvanizing energy 
and that you can heal a relationship that was fraught, even if the other person isn't there. And I think you see that in this novel. So the biggest change is not Tam and Eve. I was fascinated by them 30 years ago, and I luckily remained fascinated by them. But the biggest change is Nessa, as I had to encounter so much more complexity in life. I mean, that's really beautiful. It's true. I mean, I feel like knowing that loss is such a fundamental part of life, it's a shame that we don't do more to prepare ourselves or our loved ones for its eventuality, right? Like it always blindsides people because we sort of operate under this delusion of invincibility and like, we don't want to go there and think about it. But I wonder what life would be like if we all kind of checked into that every so often, right? And had some sort of mental preparation other than anxiety. You know, like I, I feel like I am always thinking about the worst case to prepare myself, you know, like (laughs) you're cutting a false deal where it's like an amulet. If I worry about it enough, nothing will happen, but it turns out not to be that way. And, you know, I'm thinking as you're speaking, the strongest indicator of this question is being a parent, because when I started out, I wanted without even realizing it, I wanted to protect my children from absolutely everything. And as they grew, I'm not of the small children, small problems metaphor. I loved watching my children get older. I really enjoy my, they're my teachers now. I really learn a lot from my young adult children. But I started to realize that it was very important to go to the school of adversity and learn resilience and teach my children that when things happened that were very hard, they had the fortitude to get through it. This was not in my repertoire. As, as one of my sisters liked to say, the Rappaport women, they get an A plus on the first try or they quit. This is not a good way to live. <laughs> parent, I had to memorize before I really believed it, that understanding. Do you feel that way when you raise your four? Uh, I mean, I find that the kids who have gone through the most, as with any kids in any family, not to pick out either one, but right. you know, like there's one child who's just had to overcome more stuff than the than the rest. Yes. And yes. I feel like that particular child now has a sense of grit and and she has something that it, the others I couldn't teach. You have to like learn it yourself. In other words, yes, I'm um, still you can't. You can't. It. I, <laughs> <laughs> I joke that I used to say, the other thing that you struck me when you spoke is if you have a, ch- a childhood as I did, that was very interior, addicted to reading, very dramatic inside, being a very intense person, which is genetic, you have the fake understanding that the graph of life will just go up, that you're just going to get happier and happier as you get older and older, because how could such misery endure as you are so hungry for life and longing for things? So there's a lot of true humility about coming of age and understanding that you're going to grow, not quit growing at 40, which is what I had resolved in my 30s. I'm done with this. It's too depleting. You grow till you die if you're lucky, if you're lucky. So I think the course of this novel is short, but I tried to show that these people, both Eve who's alive and even Tam, they are always in motion and their relationship is therefore in motion. Well, it's a comfort to hear what you said about relationships continuing on and love continuing on because I know there's just so much loss these days. And 
to take away that sort of finality of it all is probably one of the most healing things you could say to somebody. So anyway, and I know you've, you've spoken of, you have to get there yourself. You You have to, I know you have to get there yourself. There were so many quotes I wanted to read to you back to you, but of course I'm not going to be able to find them at the right time, but I just want to read at least one example of scenes that I loved. Oh, I like this. When I can't say I liked it. It's like so sad, but when Eve was at Tam's funeral and saying her final goodbyes, you wrote, people are starting to go, but I cannot turn away from my sister. As if departing from a king, I walk backward from the grave, a soldier in an honor guard whose watch is over, but who will not relinquish her duties. Oh, you can just see that, that just those sentences. You can see the whole grave, the cemetery, the walking. It's just amazing. And then this other passage I love, this is when Eve and Lori were having their long distance relationship back in the day before reuniting at the funeral, which was very juicy. You said, during Lori's high school trip to Europe, I was a beggar at the den window, pleading with the smug despot of impeded love for the mailman to appear. Only when I gave up did he manifest himself, a potentate in his authority to grant or withhold. However disciplined I tried to be, I could not wait until the letters fell, but opened the door, hand thrust out, speechless. I mean, what a way to describe waiting for the mailman. I mean, seriously, <laughs> this is like an exercise in, in like creative writing masterpiece. So tell me about how you honed your craft. How did you learn to write this way? Ah, well, I began as a poet and I went to University of Toronto. And then as soon as I could move to New York City, which I fell in love with, I did. So at University of Toronto, I won prize for poetry, but I decided then that poetry was too marginal to the culture. I wanted to be more in communion with people. I've written a book of prose poems, as you know, but I will get an exhibit here. In addition to the story I had to work out, the other aspect of it, as you said, was language. And the last realm of my perfectionism is writing, is choosing each word. I jokingly say, it's a very bad attribute for parenting. Your children don't care for it when you're a perfectionist and I had to give it up. But in one's own work and writing, the only harm is to myself. So I wanted to show you, this is the exhibit. This is a 32 page single space, double column document of quite literally every word in evening, except for the and and going on the basis of my friend Daphne Merkin's aphorism, you can have only one cerulean in a book. So true. I checked every word to make sure it wasn't too proximate. It's a very short novel, as you know, and I didn't want to repeat very kind of studded words. I feel that that, it would be a great diminishment of my craft if I did that. So here you have long, long lists by alphabet that sound like this. Deprived, deranged, deride, descend, desecrated, desire with how many times they appear and whether I'm satisfied that they're far enough apart that you wouldn't read it and think, didn't she just use that word? Wow. <laughs> I, that is amazing. I'm so glad you showed me that. I can't believe that had I not asked that question, it would have remained sitting by your side and I wouldn't have known about it. What else well, do you have over there? <laughs> the only other thing I have is my husband is an art, a visual artist. So when I first started this book, I was using a computer, but it wasn't really native to us yet. And I, start, I was still writing some things by hand. So this is what it looked like by hand, all these words, before I started typing. And he said to me, 
I want to frame that. <laughs> I want to frame that document with all the, with how many instances words like light came came up in evening. Wow. Well, gosh, I didn't know it was so intentional. All I could tell was the effect of it, but now seeing the work that went into it and how specific it was, that's really neat. That's also just a really interesting way to analyze anybody's work, right? How often words come, what does it mean? Which words come more often? I mean, I'm sure there's a whole science behind this that I just don't usually do, but anyway, very interesting. (laughs) So what's coming next for you now? Like this one was 26 to 30 years in the making. Do you have another one that's been gestating for as long or is that, this is the end or what, what, what do you think? I I hope it's not the end. I certainly doing the math and following the actuarial tables cannot take another 30 years to write a novel. But I do want to give a word of encouragement to anybody out there who has a dream of a project that seems as if it's not going to come to fruition, because there's a kind of serenity I have from having fulfilled my ambition for this book. Many was the soul who wondered, is Nessa hanging on to this book for its own sake? But I wasn't. I knew I would feel that click. And I did. And now I'm kind of, I have these little waves of wondering that could turn into the next book. I have certain experiences that I'm interested in, but, and I every day wish it would coalesce into a next project because I was an editor for many years. And I used to tell people when your book comes out, the most important thing you can do is be immersed in another book. But I also was thinking yesterday, I just can't force it. I mean, I am an excellent procrastinator. I am not in the flow. One of those people that I tell everybody else to do this sits down, writes every morning, writes badly. I know all the rules, but I don't follow them. So I, I think it's probably a little too early for me, given what I gave this book, to have something fully born. But I'm playing around. And it is play, right? I hope so. I mean, (laughs) it shouldn't only be work. (laughs) Awesome. Well, Nessa, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing evening with us, for telling me about your life and the backstory and showing me that amazing document. Now I'm going to go back and read Preparing for Sabbath. And this is just such a beautiful book. I love also that you structured it with the days of Shiva and I I just loved it. It's a great, I just loved it. So thank you. Thank you for being such a perceptive reader and especially for loving it because that's it. There's nothing better. (laughs) Well, thank you. And thanks. Sorry again for the interruptions in this recording. I I think it was so appropriate to be, I can't think of anything more appropriate than interrupting a mom podcast with a mom necessity. I just (laughs) love that. Yep. Yeah. You know, I can't make this up. (laughs) You have to do it. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much. And um, thank you for inviting me. Great. Great. Bye. Thanks so much to today's sponsor, my bookshop.org and my Amazon influencer store. You can check out my Amazon store at amazon.com slash shop slash moms don't have time to read books and my bookshop.org store, which is bookshop.org slash shop slash Zibby Owens. And I hope that you will find every book that you are looking for. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. 
Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 